from Kurtco Media. If you only have one life to live, you might as well live a bunch of lives. We all have, I believe, only one life to live, but that doesn't mean you have to do the same thing professionally for your entire life. And I thought, well, let's try to do a few different things. Let's try to be a poor man's imitation of a Renaissance man. That was the voice of Bobby Haas, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. Welcome to Cars That Matter. First, a little surprise. On today's program, we're not going to talk about cars. Rather, we're going to talk about motorcycles. Some of them may have sidecars, so I figure we're about three quarters of the way there, okay? Besides, real car people are motorcycle people too. So I'm going to put my stake in the ground and that's the way this conversation's going to go. So with that, let's meet a fascinating character with a fascinating life, a guy who's reinvented himself multiple times with his most recent endeavor, found friends he really never knew he had. Bobby Haas, and we're joined by his partner in life and business, Stacy Mayfield, who's been instrumental in shaping the direction of the collection and the film we're going to talk about. Welcome, Bobby and Stacy. Thank you very much, Robert. It's great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I feel like I know you both because I've watched an incredible film a couple of times that we're going to talk about later on. The film is called Leaving Tracks, which documents the inspired collaboration between some of the world's top motorcycle designers and builders, along with building the museum's collection in the throes of the pandemic. An incredible story. But first, a little bit of history. About four years ago, I dropped in on a friend in Dallas, Texas, the first time I had been back into that city for many years. And to say that things had changed since my previous visit was a bit of an understatement. It was during a tour of the revitalized design district that I discovered the Haas Motorcycle Gallery at Dragon. It was brand new at the time, and it housed a fine collection of motorcycles. Well, for a motorcycle nut like myself, it was like discovering a chest of chromed, polished, and pinstripe treasure on a desert island. I mean, it was just a remarkable encounter. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Of course, that was then. Today, the gallery at Dragon houses about 60 bikes, but the mainstay of the collection is showcased in a brand new museum, the Haas Moto Museum and Sculpture Gallery. I understand it's a brilliant 20,000 square foot space with about 230 bikes and related sculpture. I'd love to learn more about that. Bobby and Stacy, can you tell us more about the Haas Moto Museum, its evolution, how it's organized, the galleries, and some of the points of interest. It's so fitting that Stacy is part of this podcast and part of this discussion, which she rarely does. And the reason it is is because this place would not exist without Stacy. And even though my name is on the outside of the building, it is not an exaggeration to say this is a, an enterprise, this is a facility, the film was a creative endeavor which, again, would not exist without my partner and my muse. And the film opens with a line that is so appropriate in that respect. It's a quote by Yoko Ono, who said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is a reality. And the museum is the incarnation of a dream that Stacy and I hatched back in 2017. And it evolved from the Dragon Gallery, the Haas Motorcycle Gallery at Dragon, which is the Street Dragon, which we built from the ground up and started to expand my collection, which at the time was about 24, 25 cycles. And as Stacy says, the passion to acquire motorcycles was totally incurable. And rather than curing me, she caught it from me. We, in essence, outgrew the Dragon Gallery. When you saw it, there were about 50 or 55 cycles. That space comfortably holds about 60 or 65. But the desire to continue to acquire motorcycles, build the collection, commission custom builders was raging. There's no antidote for that fever. And we wandered about two blocks away from Dragon, from the street, from the gallery, and found a very large 20,000 square foot facility that was basically a warehouse for furniture. And the 
landlord we had over at Dragon was the same owner as this property and said, listen, we would love for you to build a phenomenal expansion of your facility, your gallery, your collection, et cetera. And we ended up taking all 20,000 square feet. And I remember when we met with the original creative team, and it was exactly the same team that we had for the Dragon Gallery. It was the Over the Hill Gang Rides Again with the same architect, the same designer, the same builder, Stacy, myself. And I said, we're going to build the finest Moto Museum in the world, which is a very brash, arrogant statement to make. But my feeling was, if you don't set the bar at the very top, you don't get the best performance out of yourself and out of other people. And I said, anybody who doesn't believe in that vision is welcome to leave the room. And nobody left the room. We broke ground. We tore down everything where we now exist, except the studs of the walls, started from scratch. And we built all 20,000 square feet in less than 10 months and opened our doors in April of 2018. So we just passed our third year anniversary. We began to populate the facility with our collection. As we were building, we were also buying. So by the time we opened our doors, we were up to about 100 150 motorcycles, but then we kept going. Well, those motorcycles are like rabbits, aren't they? You start with two and pretty soon you got four and then you got 10 and they just keep multiplying, huh? They're cute. You can't not love them until you end up with so many. You all of a sudden need a 20,000 square foot space to house them all. No, they're not as furry as rabbits, but they, and they look a lot different from each other, but you're right. They're very adorable. And we say goodnight to them every night and pet them on the head and go home and then come back at four o'clock in the morning the next day. Tell us about how it's organized. I know Stacy had a part of that too. It's not just one big old room filled with bikes. When we started to populate the museum and build the museum, we thought that the experience of walking through the museum should be different than the experience of walking through any other modern museum in the world. And we felt in order to do that, you can't just have 200 motorcycles on display. You must give the person who walks in the door a roadmap, but not a literal roadmap, but a roadmap in terms of the development of the industry. So we have four different chambers. The first one is called History Hall, and it's just what it sounds like. It is the history of motorcycles. The motorcycles are arranged in chronological order. So we start with an 1899 Peugeot, and we go all the way to the 2015-16-17 era. And you literally walk through, if you walk in serpentine fashion, which is how people will walk through rows of motorcycles, you will actually walk through the development of the industry from the point in time where the builders didn't even know where to put the gas tank. And if you had another chair, if you will, for the passenger, do you put it in back of the rider? Do you put it to his left, to his right? Do you put it in front? And eventually we got to the Art Deco era which is the era during which some of the most beautiful motorcycles in history were produced, the 20s and 30s. Same with cars. It was just an amazing time. It was. Pre-World War II was probably the height of design beauty in my mind for many different things, uh, architecture, cars, motorcycles, etc. And eventually you work your way to the back and then you go into the racetrack. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's about 40 different authentic racers, including quite a few that are world record holders. One that we built and commissioned that now has a world record at Bonneville. And then you turn the corner into what we call Avant-Garde Avenue, some of the most extreme and radical designs ever including our collection of electric-powered motorcycles. And then you go into the final chamber, which is the custom shop. And between Avant-Garde Avenue and the custom shop, we have close to 70 custom cycles, which is by far the largest custom collection in the world today. And I think in addition to the spatial layout, something that Stacy and I worked on a great deal was answering the question, how are we going to build a museum that we can proudly declare, well, we may have the finest motor museum in the world. We can't just say that. 
it has to be different. And how is this going to be different? And I think we focused on four or five things, one of which is the blend between vintage and custom cycles. And as you said, Robert, many museums for automobiles, for motorcycles, any form of transportation will talk about or display their exhibits in a historical fashion, which is great, but history evolves and means of transportation evolve in the way that you push the edge of the frontier is through custom creations. So we said, we are gonna have a blend of the two. And once we began to commission or collect custom cycles, we saw that that was a niche that had not been well explored. So now we're gonna specialize in a very large custom collection. And then we said, you know, we can't just ignore the walls of this 20,000 square foot facility. We are gonna have some of the finest moto sculptures and moto paintings ever created, many of which are custom. So that'll be different, that it's multimedia. And then the last two points, we decided that if we acquire a motorcycle or a sculpture, it's on display. Nothing goes in storage, which is distinct from virtually all motorcycle and all non-motorcycle museums, many of which have 60, 70, 80% of their assets their exhibits in storage. Which is precisely why the Metropolitan Museum is now raising such a ruckus with the notion of selling many of their assets that haven't seen the light of day for decades, some of them. Clearly, all of your little rabbits play a role in the public persona of the institution. I felt if we're going to acquire a motorcycle or a sculpture or painting, it's going to be on display. If it's not good enough, quote unquote, or interesting enough or unique enough to be on display, then we shouldn't acquire it. We shouldn't acquire it to put it in a warehouse or to put it in the museum and something else goes in the warehouse. It's sort of like if you have a closet of suits or jeans that you wear and then another one where you store them, you never wear the ones in storage. If it's good enough to acquire, it's good enough to be on display. And then the last point is that we do not have any exhibits either motorcycles or sculptures or paintings that are on loan from anyone else. We own 100% of what you see when you walk through the front door. And what's probably the biggest testament we have to whether or not we feel we've curated this collection and built this collection in a way that is meeting that standard is we've acquired over 230 motorcycles and we've sold exactly zero. So that tells me that either we're obsessive compulsive, which is definitely true. My kind of people. We have a standard that we refer to in the documentary. If you look at a motorcycle and it doesn't singe your eyebrows, then don't acquire it. Today, the word curate is overused in marketing hype. And it's not just a matter of taste or opinion. It's a matter of expertise. And you two have both leveraged your expertise in the motorcycle arena to build a collection that is just that, a highly curated collection. But you didn't just acquire bikes. And that's the point that I'd like to hear Stacy expand on, perhaps. You have commissioned many of these pieces in the custom shop. So it's not just a matter of seeing things you like and buying them. It's a matter of actually inspiring some builders to go beyond their vision, beyond their skill set, and achieve something entirely where the whole is truly greater than the sum of the parts. Stacy, what about curating the collection? Well, when it comes to the custom collection, that curating is so much more than just going out and finding bikes that we like. As you said, that every custom bike has a story behind it. And the relationships that have developed through the commissioning of many of those bikes are what makes them so special and the friendships that have grown from them. You've got an 1899 Peugeot. Gosh, that's the stone age of motorcycles. And that the 1920s and 30s are some of your favorites. Pick out some of your other favorites, some of the most exemplary bikes, both in the historical and racetrack arena. What is there that really stands out for the both of you? It's impossible to select favorites because it's sort of like asking somebody which is your favorite daughter and i may have a favorite but i would never say (laughs) not allowed to say that we don't have favorites in the sense of bikes that we think are better in some way than the other bikes i think we do have bikes that evoke more of an emotional reaction from us and from our guests 
particularly when you tell the story behind the bike. And I'll give you one example, which I think may be one of the most beautiful motorcycles ever designed, and that is the Majestic, which was designed and built by a fellow by the name of George Roy, who was a textile executive back in France. And George Roy, sort of like me in the sense he was not a moto person. He came into this field from being an executive of a business, a textile executive. And he decided that he was going to design and build a very radical style bike, which was the Majestic. And he was only going to make a hundred of them. So once again, just like I didn't say we're going to have the biggest moto museum in the world, I said we're going to have finest pound for pound. You know, we're going to be the Sugar Ray Leonard or Floyd Mayweather. But the Majestic, of which there are probably eight or 10 left in the world, is one of the most beautiful bikes I think ever designed. And I was looking for one for a couple of years. And then I got a call from a friend of mine, a fellow from France who now lives in California by the name of Serge Bueno, who's both a collector, restoration expert, and a sculptor. And the conversation was half in French and a half in English, because we each speak a broken version of the other fellow's native tongue. And he asked me, he said, Bubby, 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 have you ever heard of Majestique? And I said, Serge, I've been looking for Majestic for two years. And he said, well, I have one of the ones that remain. He said, I want it to be in your museum, but right now it's just a pile of rubble. It's just rusty parts. I said, Serge, how do you know it's authentic? Because they're very, very valuable. And he said, I know the story, but I want to see if we can come to an agreement for me to restore this bike and to place it in the museum. We came to an agreement in a few minutes, but we've done business together before we trust each other. And then he told me the story that the Majestic was part of his father's collection. In fact, it was his father's bike. His father had a huge collection in France. It turned out that he and his father decided to restore this pile of rusty parts from scratch. And they had all the parts cataloged, and then his father dropped it. And Serge was so overcome with emotion that he boxed up all the parts, and he couldn't touch the parts for about 10 or 12 years. Mm -hmm. He decided there was no place worthy of his father's bike once restored. But then we had become friends. He had seen the collection. And he said, if you will commission me to restore this bike, I will. Because I think the museum is worthy of my father's legacy. And we did commission it. It is just a drop-dead gorgeous bike. I was just on display at Kagoma, which is the regeneration of the Guggenheim exhibit that took place in Brisbane, Australia. It was loved by thousands and thousands of guests there. So when I walked past the Majestic, not only do I see one of the most spectacularly beautiful cycles ever created, but I see that story. And I think that is emblematic of the bikes that I would label as ones that really turn me on the most. It's when I look at the bike, I don't see the metal and the leather and the rubber. I see the story. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with Bobby Haas and Stacey Mayfield on Cars That Matter. I want to talk about your film, Leaving Tracks. It was released earlier this year, that is 2021, in 100 countries and in 11 languages. And it's already garnering awards at international film festivals and quite a bit of acclaim. It's available on multiple streaming platforms. I've seen it a couple of times. And notably, partial proceeds from the film sales are being donated to an organization called Distinguished Gentleman's Ride, which in turn will be helping men's mental health and prostate cancer research. Certainly not something that can be said of most cinematic endeavors. Bobby, Stacy, tell us about Leaving Tracks and what it was that made you decide that it was time to make such a film. The notion of making a film or doing a book was 
a project that was proposed to us by a number of different directors and producers who had become aware of or had witnessed this meteoric rise of the museum and of the custom collection from literally the rubble of a building that we were about to build to worldwide acclaim and being referred to as the Hall of Fame for Custom Motorcycles. Some people beginning to refer to it as the finest moto museum in the world. So the notion of doing a film was proposed to us a number of different times by different people. uh, And we resisted that right up until the time that we eventually hooked up with the actual director and producer, Nick Davis. And I think we resisted it because the first five or six directors, all of whom are quality, quality directors, were more interested in doing a film about success, 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 which I thought I would never go to see a movie like that because that's evident if you just Google somebody. So why should we make a film like that? What I thought would be more interesting as a cinematic experience from the audience's point of view and from the filmmaker point of view is let's blend together the moto background, if you will, with humanistic themes. Let's have the motorcycle museum and the motorcycles be like the Castle of Elsinore in Hamlet. It's the background, but the real point, the real gist of the performance is the series of human themes and conflicts that play out inside the film or in the castle. And that was what I wanted to do. I knew I had been through enough trauma and tragedy and setbacks and close calls in my life, as had many of the custom builders, that that's the real story. It's not just that we have this great museum. It's what preceded that in terms of heartache and setbacks and health crises and so forth. The same with the custom builders. The custom builders in our museum are the most famous custom builders in the world today. But I know these men and women well enough to know that they just barely escaped drowning in their own financial problems, emotional problems, family problems, whatever it might be. And in that sense, there was real connective tissue between myself and these mostly men, but also women, that we could unite the film around these themes. I showed the narrative arc to Nick, Nick Davis, and he said, I love this. I love that. And he said, by the way, I don't know the front of a motorcycle from the back of the motorcycle. I said, great, because that's not the point. And Nick has quite a pedigree in this industry. His grandfather was Herman Mankiewicz, about whom the film Mank was just made. He was the co-author with Orson Welles of Citizen Kane, probably the finest film in history. His father, Peter Davis, is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, an Academy Award winner. So Nick came with good genes to the project. And I also wanted him to approach this from the point of view that this is going to be his magnum opus. This is going to be the greatest thing he's ever produced. I think he did approach it from that point of view. And he said, Bobby, if we do this together, we're going to be co-producers, co-directors. You're in the trenches with me every step of the way. It's your narrative arc. It's your story. It's your museum. It's your set of characters. And I said, well, if I'm in the trenches, then Stacy's in the trenches because this would not exist without her. And he got that as well. And that's how we started down this path together. Well, it, it's quite a path. The film unfolds and, and has some real surprises in it. For motorcycle enthusiasts who think it's going to be just about motorcycles, I think they'll end up walking away with a whole lot more to be thinking about. But as regards those bikes and about those characters, boy, you've got a lot of them and names that may mean something to folks who follow custom builds. Jay Donovan, Brian Fuller, Max Hazen, Shinya Kimura, Kyo Kiyonaga, Michael LaFountain, Dirk Olerking, 
Craig Rodsmith, Walt Siegel, Christian Sosa. I mean, it goes on and on and on. <laughs> Some really touching stories of a character that I've had a chance to speak with and was hugely entertained and impressed by was Craig Rodsmith. You commissioned a bike from him. It was a pure flight of fancy. And this is sort of what you seem to be good at, is getting people to do things they just would not have ordinarily planned to do. He built a bike called the Killer. It's like some weird thing with uh, three motors in the front wheel hub. As a patron, how do you approach a commission? When you are commissioning a build project, and very often I'm a co-designer of that project, but I am not dedicating an entire year or even two years of my life to a single project. I will be somebody who will contribute to the design. I will be someone who is the patron in a financial sense. But when you commission a custom motorcycle build, you are actually asking someone to extract a year of their life and apply it to something that you're going to work on together. And my feeling is that the way you pay that person back for that bargain is not with a high price tag on the build. It's by affecting their life. If you can affect their life in a very positive way with that project, then that's the kind of payback you want to have. You talk about Craig. We went to Craig after we had acquired one cycle from him called the Ambassador, which is an incredible, stunning Moto Guzzi based, dustbin fairing, handcrafted custom bike that we fell in love with. We shook hands with Craig on a deal, I think, five hours after we saw the bike, and within one hour after we met him. And I haven't regretted a moment of that since. It was the first of five projects with Craig. But after seeing Craig's work and commissioning one other bike with him, I saw this grainy photograph of a bike from Germany in the 30s called a Killinger and Freud. And it had an engine in the front wheel. It was now 80 years since that had been built. And I went to Craig. I kept calling him at three, four o'clock in the morning. And finally, he answered the phone. I don't know why everybody else in the world isn't up at three, four in the morning. I said, come on, we're going to get a cup of coffee together. Stacy's up. We're all going to sit around the table. And I showed him this grainy photograph. And I said, we're going to build a bike with the engine in the front wheel. And the bodywork is going to be your signature bodywork. And by the way, this guy is a master of aluminum sculpting. What he can do on an English wheel is absolutely brilliant. And Craig said to me, Bobby, I'm the wrong person for this bike. It is just too difficult. I've never done anything like this before. And I said, great, you're hired. And the reason I said that is because I wanted to facilitate. I wanted to take Craig to the next level. I wanted him to build something that he thought he was incapable of building. You see some of the commonality with my life. I did things I didn't think I could do. I was programmed to fail at. Craig said, I'm going to fail at this. I said, no, you're not. You're going to keep doing it until you succeed. We co-designed it. Craig built it. It's now one of the most famous custom cycles ever produced. And part of the subtext of that is in the middle of the build, it's ironic that we called it the killer, which was a combination of Killinger and Freud. And we both like Jerry Lee Lewis, the killer. In the middle of that, Craig contracted larynx cancer. He called me, called me before he called his parents and told me and said, I may not be able to finish the build. I may not be able to do anything. And we talked our way through that. We put the welding tools down for a while. He had an operation. The operation was successful. It did not metastasize. And Craig got back to the process of building it. And we didn't tell anybody that story until after the bike was out because we wanted the bike's notoriety to stand on its own two wheels and not because of the background of sympathy for what he had done. But that was part of this process. So he gave up a year of his life for that, but I think we changed his life in the process. That sure talks about patronage shaping the lives of others. And I know that he was not the only person touched by the freedom and the opportunity afforded by some of these incredible commissions, again, which is why it's so valuable for our listeners to look at the Hasmodo Museum website and ultimately take a visit to see some machines that are just absolutely out of this 
world. Talk about being a Renaissance man. It's impossible to not think about patrons during the Renaissance inspiring artists and painters and sculptors and how so many of those commissions might have been onerous tasks undertaken by Michelangelo or up at the North Albrecht Durer ruining the day he ever accepted a commission. I suspect that your artists do not feel that way, especially because of the support and the personal relationships that have come out of those projects. And it's the relationships that the film seems to touch on the most. Talk about a brotherhood and a sisterhood, a community of finding friends that you kind of never knew you had. Maybe that's what motorcycles and cars do. There is a sense of brotherhood. I'll use that in, in, to refer both to men and women amongst bikers and amongst people in the motorcycle industry. You sometimes wonder, well, when I pass another biker going in the opposite direction, why do I hold my hand out as a sign of brotherhood, of greeting? It's just that you both are responding to the same streak. And by holding that hand out, you're saying we are different and we are part of the same tribe. I always thought the first few hundred times I did that, I got a chill. Just the notion that somebody would recognize me as a biker. Back in the 1960s, guys that drove sports cars would flash their headlights to each other. Now, of course, it's such a common occurrence. You'd be leaving bright lights on all the time. But it is funny how bikers still do that. I haven't been on two wheels in many, many years, but I always love seeing guys or gals kind of wave at each other, give each other a thumbs up because it is a very special club to be in. You hit the nail on the head, Robert. What the film not only documents, but what the film also enhanced was the nature of the personal relationships that exist amongst Stacy and me, because they may have started with me, but Stacy became part of every trip, every design session, every film session, every shoot. Eventually, it was a triangular relationship. People grew enormously fond of Stacy and respectful of the role that she plays and accepted that she was more than the person I love. She was more than the director of the museum. She was my muse. She was the person who inspired me. She is the person who often went thumbs down on a project and she wouldn't do it that brazenly. She would say something like, Bobby, are you sure this is what you want to do or something like that? But we did develop these deep relationships with people who have gone through some very, very tough times. You mentioned the name Max Hazen and you asked hundreds of thousands, actually millions or tens of millions of bikers. What does that name mean to you? What a lot of them will say, oh, Max, he's the greatest motorcycle designer builder in the world today. He's just a wonderkin. He's rookie of the year and most valuable player and Cy Young award winner all wrapped into one. And what people do not understand is some of the background. When I met Max, Max had already decided that he was a failure as a custom builder. He had gone one year, he had built a few, nobody bought anything, and he turned to his fiance, his wife-to-be, Sarah, and said, I can't make a go of this. I'm quitting. I'm going back to being in construction. And that was on a Monday. And on Tuesday, the phone rang. And it was my calling him because I had seen one of his creations in the window of a clothing store in Malibu. And I said to the manager, I said, that's, that's just a piece of art. Who did that? And he said, well, this guy by the name of Max Hayes. I said, you know him? He said, yeah. Yeah. And I said, can you give me his phone number? He gave me his phone number. I called Max. And that was the first of six projects we did together. And Max just exploded on the scene at that point and is probably viewed more so than any other builder in the world today as the finest custom builder. And just a sweet guy. He's almost exactly half my age. We had, besides a co-build relationship, we had very much a paternalistic, still do, relationship. I know his father, and I've told his father, anytime you don't want Max as a son, I'll take your job. The list goes on. Uh, Jay Donovan, whose name you mentioned, Jay is one-third my age. And Jay lives up in British Columbia. And Stacy and I have been up there a few times. Jay, at the age of 23, created a cycle by the name of Manta, which is just, uh, it's hard to put a label on it. You can call it brilliant, inspired, precocious, whatever. But I'm not sure Jay would still be building motorcycles if he didn't have a patron. He's so brilliant. He has so many different talents. He could be a 
college professor at the age of 26 or 27. His electric bike was a remarkable thing. Bike Stingray. I went up to British Columbia and we sat down and we said, okay, we're going to blister the industry with an e-bike here. And Jay had quotes on the wall by Plato and so forth about design and architecture. We did some design work together. He built the whole thing. And the third bike, tour in the museum, and the third one is set to arrive Friday. We will have the entire Jay Donovan collection. I'll tell you a little story about Jay. And you don't realize this if you just buy a custom bike on the market. You have to go to their shop. You have to see where they live. You have to see where they work. We went up to British Columbia and Jay's mother and father, who are younger than me, but they're sort of like me, children of the 60s, hippie type. They're in the business, quote unquote, of saving children who are born with birth defects that are so serious that the child probably is not going to live very long. There were a handful of those children around, including one by the name of John, who was not supposed to survive more than a few months. John is now Jay's brother. He's 11 years old now. He's now in regular school, and he adores the ground that that Jay walks on. And you go up and you see, this is what's behind this man. This is what's going on when he's not in his shop. The bike that's coming down here, the name we gave it, we gave it, is Amadeus, because he is so reminiscent of Mozart. He's a genius in his 20s, and we have all three of his works of art. And when he's done with this, he goes back to his 11-year-old brother and teaches him how to talk. That's the nature of what's behind these bikes and what's behind these builders. And some of this comes out in the film, I hope. The film itself has its own surprises, not the least of which was, of course, how things changed based on the pandemic. I mean, the whole course of plans was changed. I know you'd had a land speed record in the works. The film itself documents the entire topsy-turvy year that we've all gone through. What were some of the challenges and how did the thing actually shake out for you? Doing the film was an enormously emotional experience. It, it's everything that is the opposite of hooray for Hollywood. It is a, an emotionally grueling experience. The plot lines, the thematic threads that we designed in advance all were disrupted as the entire world was disrupted by the COVID crisis. So I was supposed to race at Bonneville one that Craig Rodsmith and I had built, a sidecar. We were going after a world record, and I was practicing on the track, and a COVID hit, and I decided to suspend racing for the year because of the risks that, gee, I could get COVID, and I could transmit it to Stacy, and Stacy could transmit it to her kids, and so forth and so on. It just wasn't worth it. So we had to adapt to that. We had to edit the film in the course of the COVID crisis with our crew in New York at three or four different locations, and I'm in a different location. And so the logistical problems that were and the thematic problems that were posed by COVID were enormous. But it was also a terribly emotional experience in ways that we never anticipated. And two of the prize quote-unquote endings came about as a result of that one of which was triggered when Stacy and I were in California at a shoot and I was not the character being recorded at the time but one of the builders said on film I don't know what my life would be like without Bob and it was completely unprompted I don't know what I would have done I wouldn't I don't know what I would do now Stacy and I went back to the hotel we were staying at and I told the director I said, you need to film me today because you need to film my reaction to that. Because I was, a lot of people would take that as a compliment. I took it as like a yoke around my, my shoulders, like an albatross around your neck. When somebody says, I don't know what I would do without this person in my life. And we weren't lovers, you know, it's not a throwaway line. I began to realize just what these projects meant to these custom builders. They're not creating motorcycles. They're creating their children. And many of these builders name these cycles and think of them as their children. And they go through gestation and then they go through marketing and they grow up and they have difficulty partying with these motorcycles. And now they have a place in the Hasmoto Museum where the children can reside. It's like the children can go to a long-term summer camp. They'll be fine. The director of the camp will take good care of them. And it was at that point in time that, and I think I said this on film, 
that we have to do something different for our custom builders. These are not just valuable pieces of metal. These are their children. And that led to a program which is described in the film at the very end, which we kept under wraps until May 18th, 2020, when we filmed a virtual meeting of the characters in the film who are also custom builders, not all our custom builders, but our lead custom builders. And we described what we were going to do for them when I go on to the happy hunting ground in the sky or, or <laughs> in the earth or wherever I go. And that is that is one thing that developed in the course of filming a very emotional experience. All I can say is that it's an incredibly instructional and moving end of a really superb film. I can't recommend it highly enough. We'll be right back in a moment here on Guards That Matter. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Bobby, to say you've had an unusual and an amazing life is a bit of an understatement. Tell us about the personal and professional victories and challenges that have come your way in the past decades. Your career arc from big business to freelance photography to your latest moto passions. My life professionally seems to have gone in arcs of about six or seven years each. And I'm not sure why that is. I don't know if I have achieved or given up or whatever may be the case after five or six years of what my original objectives were. But after graduating from law school in 1972, I practiced law with a fairly large firm in the Midwest. And after about six years, I made partners. So I was very pleased with that. But I was given an offer to join a venture capital firm. And I barely knew how to spell venture capital. This was the first of four or five careers that I should have totally failed at. And I was able to totally fail at being a venture capitalist. From 1978 to 1984, I was I put together a totally dreadful, abysmal track record. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, but I was in charge of this portfolio. I even remember an incident where I was sitting at a meeting with my colleagues. I was looking at a balance sheet and I noticed that the asset totaled up to exactly the same number as the liabilities and the equity. And I turned to one of my colleagues and I said, look at that. You know, the two columns add up to exactly the same number. Isn't that amazing? And she turned to me and she said, you're going to see a lot more like And that probably gives you an idea of how out of place I was. But in the course of that, I did do a couple of deals with a fellow down here in Texas by the name of Tom Hicks. Tom was leaving the small firm he was with at exactly the same time I was leaving the firm I was with, and we decided to partner up and to try to do something which in those days was called a leverage buyout or a bootstrap or an LBO. And we acquired a series of consumer product companies, including soft drink companies, Dr. Pepper, 7-Up, A&W, Country Time, Werner, Squirt, etc. And eventually, sold that portfolio along with the industrial companies that we had acquired. And this was in 1989. So another six-year arc and wrote some books, did some teaching, and eventually picked up a camera on a trip to, picked it up at the store. Went over to Africa just to get a break. And that was the first of 20-some photographic trips to Africa, and eventually that led to the hallowed halls of National Geographic as one of uh, their photographers. And that was all preceding my my life as a, as a moto collector. You exited your business career when you decided to do something that was completely insane, like hang out of helicopters and take pictures of rhinos and flamingos. Give us an idea of what your photography career was like and some of the crazy stuff you were doing. Back in the 2000, 2002 time period, there were no drones at that point in time. There was very, very little aerial photography that had been collected because it was hard to get to the more remote places where I was filming, I was shooting. I did land photography for a number of years. I published some, 
But to be perfectly honest with you, I, I thought my ground photography while I was on, on the ground was rather pedestrian. I didn't think it was anything great. But then one day, this other photographer in uh, South Africa and I took what's called a flip. We got into a helicopter. We took the doors off. I have acrophobia, so I'm afraid of heights. Uh, but for whatever reason, once the helicopter lifted off and I uh, lifted up and I leaned out, I had no sense of that. And it just seemed as if my brain my hand, my eye were working completely differently than they were on the ground. I stayed up in the air doing aerial photography for the rest of my photographic career. And it was thrilling. I was flying over places that nobody had flown over before. I was capturing images that were unlike any that existed at that time, basically because we were lunatics. We were, we were willing to put ourselves, or I was willing to put myself at risk and try to capture photographs that I had never seen before and, and I knew the audience had never seen before. And eventually my work came to the attention of National Geographic, to the head of imagery worldwide, Chris Johns. Chris said, I think we ought to do something together. And this fit with what National Geographic has been about since it was founded in 1888. It was always found it based on the thesis, based on the mantra, we are going to show the world things the world has never seen before. That's the point of National Geographic. That's the point of our images. And Nat Geo had never published an all-aerial book before in over 120 years. Some lunatic from Texas walked in with a bunch of images and said, if you want to do something together, I mean, I would be honored, which is like a rookie being handed the ball on the pitcher's mound in the seventh game of the World Series. It's the height of photography. And I took a very short road there. Some guys and women take pictures for 30, 40 years and never get to Nat Geo. I was fortunate I only did it for three, four years before I got to Netgeo, and then I worked with Netgeo from 2002 until 2010. If you only have one life to live, you might as well live a bunch of lives. We all have, I believe, only one life to live, but that doesn't mean you have to do the same thing professionally for your entire life. And I thought, well, let's try to do a few different things. Let's try to be a poor man's imitation of a Renaissance man. I've discussed this with a lot of young people who look at these different careers and these different quote-unquote marks of success. And one thing I learned, Robert, along the way is that the line between success and failure is a very thin and circumstantial line. I can go back to any of the pivotal moments in my life, and I can tell you how close I came to falling off a cliff but I was able to claw my way back on, or somebody helped me to claw my way back on. But I think that is, is something that I learned every step of the way, that if you pick up a tennis racket, you're not going to be Andre Agassi day one. You're not going to be Roger Federer day one. And if you do excel in your sport or your avocation, there's a lot of agony that goes with that, which is one of the reasons you see artists who actually harm themselves because of the fears and the dread of not being successful. And I think that when you look at people from the outside who superficially are, quote unquote, very successful, it's not the same thing as that person looking from the inside out. Because inside, I'm a very driven animal. I'm both. I'm driven and I'm an animal. And, and fortunately, I have a partner now. I haven't always had one, but I had another six-year arc. I met Stacy six years ago. I have a partner who understands that part of me and softens that part of me and moves in sync with that part of me and loves that part of me. That's something that binds us together more than any of the quote-unquote successes that we've enjoyed together. 
Let me ask, how did you and Bobby get acquainted? And how did a professional relationship kind of turn into something more? We met through a mutual friend mm-hmm. and just being in the right place at the right time. It didn't take us long to figure out we wanted to work together. And it happened very quickly and seamlessly. And it's been that way ever since. And yes, the first few years, it was all just professional. I've always thought that he's an incredibly just amazing man. And I love the way he thinks and I love the way he takes the time to think through things. I just, you know, when he overthinks things, he's going to think of every reason not to do something. And so when he chooses to do something, I have faith in his decision. It is impossible to exaggerate the significance of Stacy's role in everything that we have achieved over the past five, six years, whether that's the Dragon Gallery, the Hasmoto Museum, the film, the works that we've commissioned, the team that we've built. Stacy is indispensable to that. And I am being totally honest in saying that were it not for her in the multiple capacities that she lives in my life, whether it's as my muse, my best friend, my lover, my director, this place would not exist. That film would not exist. Those builds would not exist because anybody who's as driven as as I am, as much of a perfectionist as I am, as brutal as I am to myself, if I did not have my muse, my partner, I just couldn't make it. It was, it was sort of like somebody who tries to swim the English Channel at the age of 74 with weights around your leg. You're not going to make it across. It's too far. It's too hard. You don't have the stamina. You don't have the guts. You don't have the, the ability to move on. It's so easy to say, well, I was a National Geographic photographer and I was a finance guy. I don't need to do such and such. The only way you move forward is if you have somebody who can pick you up when you fall down and say, yes, you can. And I will give you a straight shot. I will give you my opinion. I will be your best friend, but I'll be your worst critic. And without that, none of this, Robert, would exist. There won't be a film we would be talking about. There won't be a building that we're sitting in. There won't be the 70 custom motorcycles. And that is not the love talking. That's the way it is. I would not have done this. I needed her every step of the way. Where can our listeners learn more about the Hasmoto Museum and the film Leaving Tracks? The Hasmoto Museum, the website is www.hasmotomuseum.com. Did I get that right, Stacey? (laughs) That's H-A-A-S in case anybody wants to know. Moto, M-O-T-O, Museum. Dot com. And then the film is on four major streaming platforms, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and Vudu. And it's been released in almost exactly 100 countries and 11 languages around the world. I want to thank you so much for joining us today on Cars That Matter for an episode that was absolutely remarkable and provided some insight that went beyond just tires on the road and into the kind of the hearts and dreams of the people who make the magic happen. Thanks so much for joining us, Bobby and Stacy. Our great pleasure. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.